We are continuing our study of the book of Acts, and this morning we come to Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. Um, this is a very interesting passage, and I'm very, I'm, when I, what, I, this is kind of behind the scenes stuff, it's not really that important for you, but I just kind of want you to know this. When I started studying it and reading it, I was just like, oh, I'm kind of bored. <laughs> I'm kind of bored with this. But the more and more I thought about it, and the more and more I thought about it, and, and what God revealed to me, I'm, I'm now very excited to preach to you, because uh, around this passage, there's a lot going on. You had the conversion of Paul before it. Next week, we're going to look at the conversion of Cornelius and the trance that Peter was going into. So there's some really exciting things. So this thing kind of gets like, it's kind of the mayonnaise in the sandwich or the mustard, whatever you like. It's kind of like, oh, it's nice but it's not the hamburger, or it's not the bun. It's like, it's just kind of this, it's a condiment. Uh, but what we'll see is that it actually provides a lot of flavor and color, and it's in the Bible for a very specific reason. So Acts 9, 32 through 43, you can follow along in the bulletin. If there is a title for this sermon, it's called Applying the Word. Very simple, Applying God's Word. So Acts 9, 32 through 43. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Now, the kids that you're sitting in the room, go ahead, make fun of it. Her name is Dorcas. Pretty funny. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. It's football season, and I personally am very, very excited. Right now, football teams all across the country are gathering around, and they're going through training camp. Men beating each other up in the heat of the summer to prepare for what is one of the most grueling sports that there is. Now, this reminds me of one of my favorite stories of what is called training camp, and it comes from one of the greatest coaches of all time, Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi was the head coach of the Green Bay Packers and was the coach who led them to numerous world championships. And at every camp, Amongst these professional men who've won championships, he would begin the training camp the same way. He would take a football, 
and he would stand much like a room like this with decorated and very seasoned football players, and he'd take the football, and he'd look at them, and he said, men, this is a football. Now, the men would be sitting there going, yeah, we know that. But one of the things that he wanted more than anything was the men to be dedicated to the fundamentals of football because in his belief, the fundamentals were the most important part of the team being a championship team. And he wanted to go all the way back to the basics of football. Men, this is a football. Now, knowing many of you, many of you have been in the church for a long period of time. You have your Bible, you look at the bulletin, you know what the Bible is. You've been in church, you know what it is, the ins and the outs. But sometimes we need to get back to the fundamentals. And we have to ask ourselves this, why do we listen to a sermon in church? Why is there a pastor in front of me right now looking at a text to teach me it? We need to get back to the fundamentals. Fundamentals are the most important part of all organizations and especially the church. And so we ask the question, why preach? Why do pastors spend hours on end during the week thinking and praying about a particular section of scripture? And it's a simple answer to a simple question. We preach so that we might glorify God and understand what the Bible says, how we may glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let me put this simply, more simply. The preaching of God's word helps us to apply God's word to our life for our good and God's glory. Paul the apostle told his protege, Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We preach so that we might apply it to our life. It is so easy to forget that. Sometimes the pastor gets in the way. Sometimes I, I can tell stories that you're just like, what is the point of this story? What's at the heart of what I'm doing? The heart of it is how does the word of God apply to our lives? So with that fundamental in place, let's look at Acts 9. How does Acts 9, 32 through 43, direct how we might think and live, how we might glorify God for our own good and his glory? How is this? Now, at first glance, we might look at this story and be somewhat overwhelmed by what we have read. A man is paralyzed for eight years, and all of a sudden, he's healed. A woman named Tabitha dies, and then Peter comes up to her side, and all of a sudden, boom, she's alive. She's back from the grave. And you might be sitting there going, I've never healed someone. I've never resurrected someone. How does this word apply to me? How can I find any sort of comfort? How can I find any sort of direction from these two wild stories? How, what's the application? Well, sometimes we gotta dig deep. And that's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna dig deep into this text and study it that we might understand how it actually applies to us. Because I don't know, I, I certainly can't heal people. 
And I don't know about any of you. I don't think any of you guys can heal people. But if all scripture is breathed by God and is useful for correcting and training and right for the righteousness sake, then certainly this text applies. So there's three beautiful applications from this text for us that we might glorify God and understand how we can do that very thing. And the first application of this text that I want you to see is this. Follow Jesus's pattern. The first application of this, this text is to follow Jesus's pattern. Now, as we read this story, you, you might be saying to yourself, I've kind of heard this story before. Like, this sounds really familiar. You know, someone that's paralyzed is all of a sudden healed. Someone who's dead is resurrected. Where have I read that? The answer to that question is you've read that in the gospel according to Luke. The same guy who wrote Luke writes Acts. And there's a parallel between the two. Let me show you this. In the first story we come to, a man named Aeneas is healed. And this is a very easy parallel to the story of the man who was lowered through the roof in Luke chapter 5. You might remember this. Jesus is teaching in this room, and, and all these people were coming around Jesus because he'd been healing and teaching, and they're amazed. And these buddies are like, hey, we've got this paralyzed friend, and we need to get him to Jesus so that Jesus can heal him. But no, there's no way into this room. It's like, Jesus, and they can't hear it. And so the friends come together, and they're like, we've got to get him to Jesus. Let's go to the roof. And so they cut a hole in the roof, however that is. I don't know. It's not like shingles like we got. You know, I don't know what it is. But they cut a hole in the roof, and they lower their paralyzed friend right to Jesus' feet, right? And Jesus looks at him, and he forgives his sins, and it frustrates the religious leaders. But do you know what he says right after that? He says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. That's a significant phrase that what we'll find when we place it on Aeneas when in Lydda that you see that Peter is doing the very thing that Jesus himself did. Look at verse 34. Peter says, just like Jesus, rise and make your bed. And just like the man who was lowered down through the roof, the man who's with Peter rises immediately. Can you see the pattern? See this pattern? But the pattern continues in the second healing. Consider this healing of Tabitha. You know, she, she's dead, and there's all these people mourning. Peter sends her, uh, all the family out of there, and then goes in and speaks to, to Tabitha, and she rises again. He says, Tabitha, rise, and she rises. There's a similar story in the gospel according to Luke, too, right? Right? There is. I, Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 is the story of a synagogue leader named Jairus whose daughter was dying and he runs to Jesus and pleads with Jesus, come, please come, my daughter is dying. And so Jesus eventually comes, but when he gets to the house, his daughter had died. And the people are mourning and weeping. And what does Jesus do? Just like Peter, he sends them out of the room. But he does one thing. He brings three disciples with him. James, John, and guess who? Peter. And they go into the room where Jairus' daughter is, and Jesus says to the daughter, 
child, rise. And immediately she, she rises from the grave and she starts to eat. There is a pattern that's being played out right in our text that parallels Jesus and Peter. It's a pattern that, that Peter himself mimics right in his ministry. He just mimics Jesus' ministry. It's a, it's a fascinating thing, and certainly we have to ask, what's going on here? But before we get into that, there is an important application that we can derive from this pattern. Follow Jesus' pattern. You follow Jesus' pattern in your life. Now, how do we understand the pattern of which Jesus lived his life? There's a number of ways, but I want to make it very simple for you and I as we then live our lives and move out into the world. I want to take you to the Last Supper. Jesus is meeting with his disciples the last time, and he's, you know, he's going to break bread and celebrate the Passover feast with them. But before he does that, you might recall he takes off his tunic and he places around himself a, a, a towel and then he starts to wash the disciples' feet. And, and they're so just caught off by this because this is for servants, not lords. And the disciples consider Jesus to be a lord. And yet here is their lord washing their feet. And they're reluctant to do this. But Jesus persists and then they allow him to wash their feet. Now, when it was all said and done, Jesus then comes to them and he says to them, do you understand what I have just done to you? He said, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. But if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Here we have a pattern that Jesus wants us to follow, to serve just as he has served us, to love as we have been loved. If you want to understand at least one of the patterns that Jesus' life lays out for us that we are called to follow, it is in here, to serve and consider others more valuable and significant than yourself. This is a pattern that Jesus wants us to follow. So I tell you, follow Jesus' pattern, church. Serve. Wash feet. Take time to be with little children in this church, helping them understand the gospel. Bring creative ideas to the church that the kids might understand what it is our gospel is. Serve your neighbors by being attentive to who they are. I mean, do you know your neighbor's names? If you don't know their names, you can't be a good neighbor. Be attentive to them. Serve them. Serve your friends by taking interest in them, not always being concerned about what's going on in your life. Ask them what's going on in their lives. Provide for them when needed. Serve people in this city by helping in tangible ways. Serve and immerse the call. And Lord willing, in the very near future, something I'm very excited about, and I know Gabriel's very excited about, New City Kids. A ministry we're looking to, to try to start here in Little Rock. But all of this is done in the pattern of Jesus, serving as we have been served. Peter followed in the pattern of Jesus' ministry. He, he mimicked Jesus in his life. Let us follow the pattern 
that Jesus has laid for us. We can apply the word of God to us, and it's simple and beautiful. It brings glory to God, and it is for our good. So this is the first application that this text provides for us. Follow Jesus's um, pattern. But there's a second application, I think, that is vitally important for us to see. And the second application of this text is to trust Jesus's power. Trust Jesus's power. Now, I don't know about you, but miraculous healings are an incredible mystery to me. I, I, maybe you've heard stories, some of the doctors in the room heard stories of cancer patients that were prayed for, and, and all of a sudden the cancer's not there. Maybe you've heard of miraculous healings yourself. And one of my favorite stories comes from one of my seminary professors, and I've told you this before, but he's in the bush of Africa, and his hand gets slammed into a, a van, and it's so mangled that he, has, he thinks he has to leave Africa and come back to the States to deal with his mangled hand. But one of the pastors of one of the, the village uh, churches there comes and prays, and his hand is restored. And you're like, oh, this is some Pentecostal preacher. And it's like, no, this is a Presbyterian preacher who is like, straight-laced and clean, but his hand was healed. Like, these stories fascinate me. I love stories like this. They're astounding, but they, they ask me, they force me to wrestle with, okay, how do I respond to them? Like, how do we respond to these two stories of the paralyzed person who's, who's restored and, and the dead person who's raised to life? What is our response? And my guess is there's many, uh, there's an array of responses, and it doesn't necessarily fit one person. There could be awe, there could be doubt, there can be envy, whatever it might be. There's a numerous response. But here's a response that I think all of us, all of us have to have regardless. Trust Jesus's power. Trust Jesus's power. Scripture is very clear that miracles are completely and utterly dependent on God, upon Jesus. At the end of the day, Jesus is the one with power. Let me show you this in the text. Peter, with, without, without a doubt, would tell you, it ain't me. I ain't got no power. It's Jesus. Look at the first healing. Aeneas, you know, he, he's paralyzed. But what does Peter say? It's a very simple, it's a very simple phrase. He says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. He's not proclaiming that he's healing him. He's saying, Peter's saying, Jesus is healing you. Jesus is the one with power. Now notice the reaction of the people in Joppa after Peter prays over Tabitha and she's resurrected. You would think they would be like, dang, Peter, like, whoa. Whoa, who are you? But that's not their reaction, is it? No, the text is very clear. In verse 42, they don't stand in awe of Peter. Who do they stand in awe of? They stand in awe of Jesus. Peter's like, look, it ain't me. It's Jesus. And what's the point? Jesus is the one with power. Trust Jesus' power. Friends, do you ever feel spiritually dead? Like there's just no life in you? There's this temptation that you might feel in the midst of this spiritual deadness of like, okay, okay, I, I gotta read these books, whether it be self-help books or, or, or these religious books, and I just gotta do, 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 do. Here's the reality. You will never be able to make alive that which is dead. 
you've got to trust the power of Jesus. He's the one that makes alive. Do you have children and you long for them to know Jesus, but they've left the faith and you go, what do I do? And you try to game plan and think about, okay, what, what can I say and what, what, what can I do to get them to, to believe? <laughs> Remember, someone who comes to faith is a miracle. They've been made alive by the Spirit. There's nothing that you can do. You've got to trust Jesus' power. Trust Jesus' power. Why? Because Jesus is the one with power. Jesus is the one who works miracles, not your incredible statements of, of, of faith and planning. Not to say that those things are bad, that's good. But ultimately, power rests with Jesus. Maybe you're afraid of life after death. And death causes you know, sweat to to form on the back of your neck. And every little sickness or cold makes you, you know, break out in hives because you're so anxious about it. But you won't even talk about death because you're just like, I don't want to. <laughs> you know, Jesus has power even over death. I think that's one of the simplest applications of this. Jesus has power over death. And so we don't need to be anxious about our death no, we need to be hopeful about our death because the same thing that was said to Jairus' daughter and the same thing that was said to Tabitha will be said to you. And you, just like those two, will get up yourself because Jesus has the power. And he will say to you, rise, and you will rise. So we need not fear death because Jesus has the power. We, don't, we need not form sweat on the back of our, of our neck because Jesus has the power. This text reminds us of these things. Jesus has the power, so we trust it. And we walk into this world with great hope and perseverance. All scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And this text, Acts 9, 32 through 43, calls us to embrace Jesus' pattern, to trust Jesus' power, and one last thing, to embrace Jesus' positioning. Embrace Jesus' positioning. You know, when we read stories like this, and this story in particular, it is easy to be amazed at the healings that took place. We, we've never witnessed this, at least I haven't, so it may surprise you to hear me say that really the healings of this story are simply secondary. Let me say that again. The healings of this story are secondary. We wanna make them primary because they're amazing. But they're secondary. Follow along with me. At the beginning of the story, Peter goes to Lydda. Why is he going to Lydda? I mean, it's just a seacoast village in Judea. He's going because he's going to visit some of the disciples there. Peter goes simply to do what Jesus has called him to do, feeding his lambs, tending his sheep, feeding his sheep. But it's there, while he's there, that he encounters a paralyzed Aeneas, and then the healing takes place. Now, right then and there, we read that Tabitha, a follower of Jesus, in Joppa, 18 miles north of Lydda, dies. And when this happens, two disciples are like, Peter is in Lydda. Go get him and bring him to Joppa. 
And so Peter, just doing what he does, goes to Joppa so that he can tend to Tabitha and those that are mourning. And there, of course, he heals her. And these are incredible stories worth celebrating. Uh, we we want to be amazed at these healings, and that's right. I mean, the, them alone is worthy of being in scriptures. But the healing themselves is not why they are in scriptures. Jesus, and I want you to hear this, Jesus has positioned Peter in Lydda and Joppa for a specific purpose, a much larger purpose than healing two people. And it's this story that's truly important. We need to place these two stories in the context of the book of Acts. It's not just two stories that are told in isolation. It's just kind of like little fragments in which we see. No, it's, it's two stories, a part of a much larger story. So what's the story that's being told here? Now, we're gonna, I'm going to go ahead and we're going to cheat a little bit on the couple of sermons coming ahead because I want you to see what's happening in Acts 9. In Acts chapter 10, we find Peter in Joppa. He's still in the city where Tabitha was raised from the dead. And you might remember this. He's on the top of a roof and he goes into this trance-like state. And a rug is lowered down from heaven and Peter sees all these unkosher foods and then God's voice goes, eat. He's like, I ain't, I ain't touching that stuff. I've never touched that stuff. I'm a Jew. Those are unclean according to your word. And then it came again. He's like, no, I'm not eating. And then it came again. No, I'm not eating. But then what we read in Acts 10, there's a knock at the door. Hey, uh, Peter, there's two men that have come from a Gentile named Cornelius. He's in the city of Capernaum, much further to the west of where this was. And they're like, hey, an angel has appeared to us and told, told us that you need to come with us because our Lord and servant, a Gentile, is very curious about Christianity. Peter's like, all right, I guess I gotta go. So he goes, and for the first time in his life, he sees someone who he would never affiliate with become a Christian, and he's going, what is God doing here? You know, I see this trance with all these unkosher foods, and then all of a sudden a Gentile is converted and becomes part of the family of God. What is happening here? I guess God is on the move. And guess where Peter goes in Acts 11? Guess where he goes? He goes back to Jerusalem. And what do you think he tells the apostles that are there? You think, oh, just how, hey, hey, Peter, how was it? Oh, buddy, you should see what I saw. What did you see, Peter? Well, paralyzed man walked a dead woman rose from the dead and get this a gentile became a member of the family of god whoa whoa peter this is what's going through their mind that's too far they didn't say this of course in acts 11 they were going a gentile became a christian how is this so in their minds, they would have doubted that big time. I mean, Peter ends up doubting it later on in his life, and Paul had to come in and be like, dude, you can't do that. But here's where I want to put Acts 9. And playing off of the pattern of Jesus and the power of Jesus, why is Acts 9 in there in relation to chapter 10 and chapter 11? Here's what I want you to see. It is placed there. It is placed there. These two incredible stories of healing that Peter participated in to demonstrate the pattern and power of Jesus through Peter. 
And it is this demonstration that gave Peter the divine authority and stamp of approval that indeed the Gentiles have been brought into the family of God. This is radical for the Jews. And they debate on it time and time and time again. A lot of the New Testament is spent dealing with this Jew-Gentile distinction. I mean, just read Galatians and Ephesians. This was radical to them. And Peter needed to demonstrate that he had divine authority, the very authority of Jesus, so that they could say, yes, this is how God's moving. So when you place this small little story into the story that is being told, you start to say, wow, Jesus positioned Peter in Lydda and Joppa for a much larger purpose. Huh. If he can do that in Peter, I wonder if he can do that in my life. And of course, he certainly can. And he certainly does. When I graduated from seminary, Kimberly and I had a very strong desire to plant a church in Tallahassee, Florida. For over a year, we prayed, we worked, we connected, connecting with different churches about what it would look like to plant a church. And we thought things were going in the right direction. We thought God was calling us there. But about a year into all of this praying and connecting, the doors slammed and man, did my heart break. All of that work all those hopes and dreams only for it to be crushed. God, what do you want? And he's saying to us, I want you somewhere else. To us, he told us, I want you in Little Rock, Arkansas. You got the capital right. It's just a different state. And let me tell you something. I am so grateful for that now. Oh, I wish that I would have embraced the position that Jesus put us in there <laughs> in that moment. Oh, that I would be able to see how God was moving and working. I would have delighted much more than sorrowed in the, the rejection of being not called to Tallahassee. And it applies to us. Where you are right now is no mistake. Jesus has positioned you into this chair right now. Now, right where you are, the difficulties that you're experiencing in life, maybe even the joy that you're experiencing in your life, God is going to use for his purposes. He is. Just as he used Peter and the healings of those two people for a much greater purpose down the road, he's doing the same with you. And he's going to use what you're going through right now to accomplish his purposes. Oh, that you would embrace that whether it be good or bad. It is not for us to understand the why of where we are or why what's happening to you is happening. All we have is to embrace it, to follow Peter and saying, here's where I am. This is where I'm going to go. This is what I'm going to do in pursuit of God's purposes. Lord uses Peter as a vessel to accomplish his will. He does the same thing in your life we just don't know what that is. All we can do is embrace where we are. There's a temptation that all of us have. is like, if I could just get to this place, if I could just, if I could just make more money, if I could just graduate, if I could just you know, move to this, stop. Embrace where Jesus has you. 
And, and yes, maybe there's a time in your life where you will make more money. Maybe there's a time in your life where you will get the job that you're longing for, but that's not for now. What's for now is where God has called you. Right here, right now. Embrace Jesus' positioning. Friends, the, wor- <laughs> the Bible is the word of God. This is the word of God, quoting Vince Lombardi as a preacher. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And this includes what we find in Acts 9, 32 through 43. Here we are urged to follow Jesus' pattern, to trust Jesus' power, and to embrace Jesus' position. Oh, that we would take these truths to heart and live them. Let me pray. Almighty and gracious God, we give thanks to you for your word, for it does guide us and direct us. We thank you for how it magnifies who you are and what it is you have done for us. I rejoice in the great hope of the resurrection that this text shows to us. It's so beautiful and what hope it brings for me. So Lord, I magnify you. I rejoice in you. But I ask that you would give me the strength and the wisdom that I might know what it means to follow your pattern in this life. Give me direction. Oh, that I would have the, 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 the trust to be able to embrace where you have me right now, not looking to the future, not looking to the great things that might get done or whatever, that I embrace where I am right now. And I pray the same things for my friends. Oh, that we would take heed to your word. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.